we want to ask a question, and I'm thankful that Nancy talked today because um, I really didn't know how to introduce this sermon. Uh, it's a little. It's one of those we had. First serve, before first service, we have our 8 o'clock Sunday school class, and somebody came out and said, look, I, I may have to leave in the middle of your sermon, so don't take it personally. And I said, well, it's fine. We're going to talk a little about sex in our sermon, so be careful when you get up and walk out. It may be a little awkward for you. And so, uh, so the text that we're going to look at today kind of takes us down that path. And so why, when I knew Nancy was coming, and I just think about the work that they do, um, it was a good introduction for me, I think, because it asked the question, um, what good does the gospel really do in a community? And having worked with Nancy in different places in Guatemala, and it's the same here, if you walk into places where it is dark, it is uh, difficult, where there is abuse, where there is brokenness, where there is gang activity, there's all kinds of violence that goes with that. Um, What good does the gospel do there? And I think our passage today... um, when it's lived out in a context like that, it changes things. Maybe not everything, but it changes things. In, in people's lives that used to be just be seen as objects of abuse or objects that didn't matter, all of a sudden lives begin to have value and people begin to treat one another with that kind of value. And so that's why I'm thankful that she led into what we're going to talk about here today because I think it gives it a context that isn't just a black and white thing. It's, it's a people thing. And so as we talk about today, what we're going to look at here, I hope that that um, is the context from which I share and that you hear. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul begins to his this last two chapters, the last half of his book, with, with these words. He says, finally, uh, then, brothers, uh, we ask, we can put that up there. There you go. Thank you. Very good. Bingo. All right, finally. And, and, and anytime a preacher says finally, you know, okay, sh- we, chicken, we can, we can go to the restaurant here. Start the car, honey. Push the button. Well, if you're reading along Paul's letter and you think, oh, he's about done, he's not. He's got half of his letter left to go, but he's a preacher. So he can say finally and still get away with doing that. And so it's okay. But he says finally, and I think it's more of a transitional thing than a concluding thing. It's a finally then, brothers. So he's got through all the, I'm proud of you. I miss you. I can't wait to try to be with you again. But then he gets to the last half of his letter and he's going to encourage them. He's going to teach them and some things that he needs to build them up in. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, note that word walk, I, on the back of your outline, I put the whole text from verses 1 through verse 12, and Paul really bookends this passage with a walk in verse 1 and a walk in verse 12, um, and it's just this whole thing in between is, how are we supposed to walk with the Lord? How is it supposed to look in our life? And it's very much about how we walk to please God. And he says, you're already doing this, just as you're already doing, but I want you to do so more and more. I want you to continue to grow. And remember, Paul has been with them for a couple months only. Just a short time, he was able to share the gospel with them, but again, to be able to teach them, this is what this new life in Jesus looks like. This is what we live like. This is why we live this way. Um, And he talks about in verse two, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, uh, for this is the will of God. Now just pause there a second, because oftentimes if if you're a praying person or a person who thinks of God very often, you've probably wrestled with, well, what is God's will for me? What does he want for my life? And oftentimes we think of terms, think in terms of, well, what job does he want me to do? Or or what does he want me to go to college? Or what does he want me to do with my life? Or what other thing? And, And so oftentimes when, and God may lead you to those things. Um, but the clear things in the scripture, whenever you read that little phrase, this is the will of God, oftentimes there's a character issue. There's a lifestyle issue attached to it. More than a go and do this job, it's a be this kind of person. 
And if you're this kind of person, I'll take care of everything else around you. And so here's God's will in this passage that Paul reminds these Thessalonians of when he says, God's will for you is your sanctification. That's a big word that just means your holiness. That I, I want you to be holy because he is holy. And, and here's the specific place. And, and if you also have that outline, that text on the back of your, of your page, you'll note that there are three that words, okay? Because he says your holiness, your sanctification is, is, is what God wants, is his will for you. And then he gives three that phrases that I think as you look at those that's, um, that's not a proper sentence, I don't think. As you look at those that's, um, they kind of help you outline this passage and he's unpacking a thought. And so here's God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that, keep going, there you go, you're right on. Um, next one. Next, there, you go, there you go. That each of you know how to control your, your, your body, your own body, in a way, in holiness, in honor, not in, passionate of, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That, there's a third one, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So he gives you three that's to kind of unpack that phrase. What does he want for you? The sanctification, this holiness. Then he summarizes it with a little four. Uh, verse seven says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, who disre- whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now concerning, and he kind of transitions, has a couple more things he wants them to think about. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. In other words, Thessalonica was kind of a traveling destination, You're kind of a, a shipping port place that people would travel through it a lot. And so he says, look, as these Christians are traveling in and out of this town and they're showing up at your doorstep and they need a place to stay, you are loving them, you are inviting them in, you are showing them the best hospitality, you are loving your brothers. Um, in verse 10, one last encouragement for them. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Keep loving, keep growing in that. And we also encourage you to aspire or be ambitious to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may, proper work, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here we go. Three things I want to show you. The first one we're going to spend the most amount of time on. We're going to fly through the last two really quickly. Um, and I mean that kind of like Paul means finally. We're going to go through quickly through the last two things. But the biggest part of our time is the, biggest part, the first half of this text that we're going to look at. God's will for your life is what? Number one, I think as you look at this passage, God's will for us is to live in purity. God's will for us is to live in purity. And now he starts off with this topic of, of, of sexual uh, purity, uh, abstaining from sexual immorality. Why does he do that? Why is that an issue? You think, well, aren't we the first culture that ever struggled with uh, sexual immorality or, or sexual issues or, or wrestling with that issue? And you'd be far wrong from that if you were to think that. You see, Paul lived in a culture and the Thessalonians lived in a town that was known for its uh, sexual um, um, what's the right word? Lack of boundaries. All right, It was a seaport city. 
people would come there. Uh, they'd been at sea for a long time. And so that just produced a culture that uh, there was a lot of wild living. I will say that. Also, the Greek religions of that day oftentimes tied uh, sacred prostitution into their worship. And so all kinds of things that these Thessalonians would have grown up seeing, living, doing, experiencing. And so Paul shows up and begins to tell them about Jesus. And he begins to explain to them, this gospel doesn't just mean that you, you trust in Jesus. There's this ethical thing that goes with it. And it also affects your view of sexuality, your practice of sexuality. Um, there's a guy by the name of Demosthenes, I can't say his name ever, Demosthenes of Athens, who once described the, the, the sexual ethic and attitude of his world that Paul lived in, in these word, words, that we, speaking of men, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for day-to-day -day needs of the body, we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guarding of the home. And all of you ladies are thinking, what a jerk, right? Okay, and you would be right. And so, but that's the culture, that was the norm, that was just how people lived. There was no cultural ethic that said, hey, you're getting married. You should just stay faithful to your wife the rest of your life. That was not anywhere on the radar. And so when Paul shows up and he begins to preach this ethic that was very different than that, uh, it was challenging. And it would have been very difficult for these Thessalonians leaving that culture. And so Paul writes to them to say, look, I, I know the culture around you puts pressure just to go back to your old ways, but I want you to remember some of the whys. I want you to remember why we came and we, we preached what we did. And it wasn't because Paul had great ideas. Paul had this new idea, let's try this for a while. It was very much rooted in their faith in Christ, their faith in God. And so Paul says, look, it was, it's God's will for you, your sanctification, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. That word abstain means to keep as far away from as possible, to run away from, to have nothing to do with. Uh, sexual immorality is a big, broad word that encompasses all kinds of behaviors. Basically, in Paul's definition of it in, in the Bible, it, it would certainly include anything that's not between a man and a woman in marriage. And so anything outside of that was what Paul was talking about. Your mind, your body, your eyes, everything. And so Paul is preaching something that seems very radical in our culture, right? You go outside these walls today, you listen to the, the ethic that's being preached to you about sexuality. It is very different from that. And you think, well, surely that's an old-fashioned thing. Everybody in Paul's day would agree with that. But no, Paul came and preached it to a culture that thought it was just as radical as, as maybe the people that you live around would think this is radical as well. And so Paul encourages them, don't as a Christian now, now as a Christian, don't pick up the world's moral standards and, and just to kind of blend in and do what they do, but shape your morals like the character of a holy God. Shape your morals as if the father that you believe in, the Jesus who came and saved you, now that you're in him, shape your morals to be what they are. And so what I, I appreciate about this passage, as much as other passages say the same thing, but this one, Paul goes and he gives us some reasons as to why this might be. He gives us some reasons. Again, in verse four and five, he, he kind of gives us the definition of what does this look like then? If I'm gonna pursue this sexual uh, purity, what does it look like? It means in verses four and five that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. And those are important words. Those are helpful words, I think, for us because holiness is kind of a standard that God sets, but honor is kind of like, okay, I'm gonna live my life in a way that honors God, honors the temple that now I am that Paul says in 1 Corinthians because the Holy Spirit lives in me and I'm a, I'm a temple now. I should live in a level of honor. But it also implies that we're gonna see that there's a level of honor that other people are due because they are made in the image of God. 
And that my lack of following God faithfully in this oftentimes is going to dishonor God. It's going to damage the honor that my temple is due, but it's also going to dishonor other people. I'm going to take honor away from other people. And here's my question for us as I think about that verse, is that who's in control of your sexual appetites? And that's what Paul is asking them to think about. Is, are you in control of your own body and holiness and honor? Or is it like the passion, the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God and they're just following whatever feels good, whatever they want, whatever they see, whatever impulse they have, they just follow that. Who's in control of those appetites? And Paul implies the Bible would be very clear to say, I do have the ability to control that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not tempted. That doesn't mean I don't have struggles. That doesn't mean I don't wrestle with that. Um, but if God is a reality in my life, I have the ability to practice self-control. And uh, we could go deep into that, but we won't. But just understand that, that it's not just a, well, I have to because I feel it. It is very much a, how do I learn with God's help to learn to practice control of my body in holiness and in honor. And so then he goes on to give four reasons, um, I think, that why we should pursue this, why we should think about and, and look to abstain from sexual immorality. Um, I, the first one is my favorite, maybe the wrong word, but it's, it's a word that I think gets to the heart of this because so many times when we think of, well, God wants me to be holy, I just think of it's, well, God's just not into fun. God just doesn't want to have, us, have any good things in my life. And if it's, if it's fun, it's out. I can't do it. And that's not what God is after here. God understands the power of sexuality. He understands the power and the difference that it makes in our life. And so the first thing I want you to see is that the first reason is in verse six, that Paul says, I want you to consider the character of the crime. I want you to consider what not following these guidelines, this teaching on sexual purity does because it hurts people. And as much as we like to live in a culture that says we're free and, and it doesn't hurt anybody, I'm not hurting anybody else, Paul would say that is so far from the truth. And he, look at verse six. What, the first thing he says is that the reason I want you to do this, I want you to have honor and holiness in your life is because I don't want you to transgress and wrong your brother or sister or any person. That's just a generic word that means other people. I don't want you to hurt other people um, in this matter. And that's a powerful phrase. And I'll be honest with you. Whenever I knew this sermon was coming up a couple weeks ago, there's this thing that grows in the pit of my stomach because I don't really enjoy this topic. It's, it's, my kids are already freaked out from the first service that I had to talk to. And so it's not a fun topic, right? Uh, it's a quiet ride in the van on the way home. And so it's uh, when you and I think about this, but this is the thing that just, I just kept coming back to. If you were to make a list of, um, of the hurt that comes into the lives of people who have been abused, who have been raped, been taken advantage of, exploited, um, objectified. Um, that's what Paul's talking about. When we don't follow this truth, what do you have? You end up with a culture, whether it's Guatemala, and you walk through the streets, and there's people that are objectified, taken advantage of, and abused, and raped, and all kinds of painful things, or that happens right here. When we don't follow this truth, we may think, well, it's just me and my desires, but every time I act on an impulse outside of what God is telling me to do, I am transgressing and I'm wronging somebody else. Whether that be the, uh, the abuse, uh, again, adultery, I'm taking away something that belongs to someone else. Um, even premarital sex is robbing a future spouse of the affection that someone else probably deserves for my own personal wants, for what I want. And it's about who's in control. If it's about what I want, 
and it's me and it's my passions that's driving it, I can very quickly objectify and take someone from the level of, of a human being who's created with dignity and honor in God's side and all of a sudden they're just a means to an end so that I am satisfying a desire in my life. And so I just appreciate that phrase and it's the one that I, I don't know what you'll do with the rest of this, but regardless of, of what you think of this teaching, whether you think, oh, that's just old fashioned or you can't argue with what Paul is talking about. Just look at the collateral damage in our culture that's happened because we have just thrown off all restraints and we say, well, we'll just fix that later or somebody else will fix that. That's not my problem. And we live in a culture that just reaps the pain of that. Whether it's husbands and wives, present or future, whether it's parents or children, born or unborn yet, public health, public morality, the honor of an institution that just holds society together in marriage, all kinds of things happen and so sin always steals something from someone else, and that's true regardless of the sin. But sexual sin certainly does that. It steals from the person, it steals from our future, it steals from our present, it steals all kinds of things. And so we're going to look at the other three, but that's the one for me that really um, challenged me and can uh, just ask me to stop and man, just be very careful about this because God is not out here saying, hey, I just don't want you to have any fun. God is saying that I love people. And when you don't follow my guidelines, people get hurt. And kids grow up with all kinds of issues. And, and women are, are, are objectified and, and exploited. Um, and you have sex trafficking. And you have all kinds of stuff. And you think, why would we have that in 2019? It's because we don't want to live by rules. We just want to please ourselves. And so I think, I'll, I'll leave it at that. The character of the crime is number one. But he goes on quickly at the end of that verse, in verse, end of verse six, to talk about the character of the punishment. Um, if you're a Marvel fan, here's your word of the day, um, that the Lord is an avenger, okay? I don't know if he shows up in the, in the Hulk and all those people, but it talks about the Lord as an avenger, and you think, that seems harsh. That's where God gets a bad rap, right? The guy's up there, he's just got his thumb, he's got his hammer ready. We're gonna talk about this hammer in a second, but he's got his hammer looking for anybody who's having fun, anybody who's out there to have a good time, he's just gonna whack them on the head, because that's what God is. He's just a mean old avenger up there. And that's not what this is talking about. Read that in context. Why is God, does it say that God is an avenger? It says that because, because if you look at the first part of that, what is God's attitude towards people? God loves people. And who does he love especially? If you read the Bible, he loves the oppressed. He loves those who have no voice. He loves people, that, the widow, the orphan. And what so often happens when, when we choose to exercise power in sexual ways and we take advantage of people, you make the connection, who is God avenging? God is avenging people that are being taken advantage of, people that are being objectified. And, and whether that comes in, in a present form now or it comes future when I stand before God someday, I don't know what that looks like. I'll let you stew on that. Um, but when it talks about God being an avenger and all the things, it's all tied to, boy, don't do wrong to someone else because God cares about those people. God cares about that young man or that young woman. God cares about that kid. God cares about that, that older person, whatever it may be. God cares about that person. And so be careful that you do not allow your sexual attitudes, practices, habits to do something that brings harm into the life of another human being because God cares about that. And so consider the character of the punishment, verse six. Number three, um, consider the character of the Christian calling. And this is, again, just where God is not saying, look, I'm not trying to ruin your fun. But when you joined my way, when you said, I want to follow Jesus, Part of that way is I'm calling you into this beautiful thing, this beautiful life where I want to bless, I want to lead you, I want to protect some things in your life, I want to shine through you. And holiness is a part of that. 
God called you with a purpose in mind. He has a goal, excuse me, for you to reach, to be forgiven, to be adopted, to be given this new life and to just shine for him, reflecting the holiness of God through your life. Uh, and again, that's not a burden. If that's a burden, you need to go back to step one and realize that it was, it was the love that, that was talked about up here earlier, that I didn't deserve, I didn't earn it, I, I, didn't, I couldn't get it without him just being crazy uh, to give it to me. But that grace that he showed me leads me to this life of gratefulness, for this calling on my life. Verse seven and eight, God did not call us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, at the end of that is the fourth thing I want you to see. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit to you. Um, that's the fourth thing. Consider the authority of the one, um, the one who commands. Again, Paul is very clear to say, this isn't Paul, the apostle, just sitting back, figuring out, well, how can I mess with people's lives? How can I put my little touch on this whole Christian thing? He is very clear to say, this is uh, from Jesus, back in verse two. This is everything we've learned from Jesus. Verse eight, this is all what God's always taught. God always has said this. This is not new. This is, and so if you're, you don't want to agree with me, that's fine, but just you're rejecting God. It's not me. I'm just the messenger here. And so consider those things. And so I just come, as I put that before you today, that passage is, it messes with you if you're not careful. That's good. It should. Um, but may we do so not with just, ah, that's just old-fashioned stuff. Consider why Paul gives the ideas he gives in this passage. And so we are called to live a life of purity. But there are two, three, two, two more things I want you to see very quickly here. Um, number two, uh, we'll just, I'll throw these up here and we'll move on here. God's will for your life is to live in purity, but God's live, will for your life also is to love one another. And I think this ties right back into that point we just kind of drove down pretty deeply on that, man, why does, how do these two things, why do I pursue purity? Because I want to love people. And I love people best when I love them from a pure place and I love them in pure ways. And if I'm not loving people purely, I'm not really loving them and I'm gonna mess with their life. I'm gonna do damage to their life that I don't wanna do. And so he calls them to love one another. He says, you've been doing this, verse nine and 10. Uh, I don't have to write anything. You've already been growing in this. You learned this from, uh, you've been taught by God. You look to how God loves people. And you just said, you know what? If God loves people like that with a crazy love, we're gonna go love like that. And so maybe they love the visitors who passed through their town and the word spread. Maybe they, maybe they love the people who started the riots that were aimed at them and they showed love to those people. Um, crazy, how about that? Maybe they loved each other and that's sometimes hard. They just love people. And Paul says, you know what? Kudos, keep doing that. Grow up more and more. Continue to love each other. That's God's will for you. And number three, God's will for your life is to light the way for others. To light the way for others. You and I look at that and... and we won't, we're going to come back to this in a few weeks, and so I won't drill down too much on that. But just think of this. He says this, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, aspire to live quietly. In other words, you're not going to walk out your front door, walk down the street, saying, hey, here's Mr. Purity. Woohoo! Got my, I got my, I'm pure t-shirt on, so everybody knows that I'm a pure guy, and I love people. It's not about beating your chest and, and, and drum, beating your own drum, saying, look at me. He says, you know what? You don't need to do all that. Just get up every day. Live quietly, mind your own business, go to work with your hands, do your job well, do the very best you can. And when you do that, you're gonna to begin to earn the respect of people day in and day out as you, they just watch your life as you love them, as you treat them differently. They're not an object to you. They're a person, a human being with, with real thoughts, with a real soul, that you're gonna treat them with respect in a different way because you're gonna love them purely. You're gonna be different to them. And so to light the way for others. And so I'll put that before you. 
and we'll finish with that. I brought a hammer with me here today because here's what happens. This, this is always a hard thing for a preacher to do because sometimes Christian people get truth and they take it like a hammer. They just start going around beating people up with it. It's like, oh, you terrible person. Look at you. Look what you did. And they just begin to beat people. I'm, I'm gonna hold on tightly to this so you're okay. All right, they're gonna begin to beat people up with the truth. And this is a tool that can certainly do some damage and the truth can do that. And, and a lot of people have been hurt because graceless, unloving people have just bombarded them with truth. And yet, I don't think that's the, what Paul is writing to them for. I think he's writing to say, I'm going to give you some truth. But I want you to build a shelter. I want you to build a safe place for people to come. I want you to build a, a place that it's safe for them to land and say, you know what? We've all been there. We've all struggled. We've all fallen. We have all failed. And at the end of that path is a shelter where the Most High God lives. Uh, last week in our sermon, um, we talked about a passage that I really didn't have time to, to talk on more, and I probably don't have time today, but I want to read it to you anyway. Um, it says this. Remember last week when we were talking about the difficulties that these Thessalonians were facing and how they were being persecuted? And Paul writes to them at the end of chapter 2. Um, he says, I'm thankful that you, when you face these persecutions and hard things uh, from these Jewish folks in town, I'm thankful that you didn't give up then he begins to list some words that seem a little harsh. He says, For your brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have suffered the same things from people of your own country just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus. So he begins to list all these things that, that the Jewish folks had done. They'd started this riot in town. They killed Jesus. Um, if you read that story, they killed the prophets before that and persecuted us. And they've displeased God and are hostile to everyone. In other words, everywhere we go, there's this group of Jewish folks who just continue to oppose us. And, and he finishes that passage by saying, you know what, the, the wrath of God is building up against that. And we tried to say it quickly last week. And I just want to stop there because I think it applies here too. God never delights in wrath. Whether it's being the avenger here, that's not what God's MO is. He's not out to, to destroy and beat people up with it. His desire is always that people would, would repent. And so I would just finish with that in mind, with, with Paul dealing with these people who continued to, to persecute them, um, that he always tried to build a safe place for them to land, a pillow, uh, a pad for them to land in. And I would just illustrate that with Acts 2, that here's Peter, the other apostles, they stand before the same group of people that Paul is talking about, these people who had crucified Jesus just a month or two before. And he preaches truth to them. He says, look, God sent his Messiah. And he quotes all these verses to prove it and said, but you rejected him and you crucified him. And it, it worked. They were cut to the heart. And God said, Peter's response was not, you don't deserve a second chance. You don't deserve grace because you messed up. How big, is it, how big of a mistake is it that God finally sends his Messiah to you and your response was, let's just tack him to a tree and leave him there and make fun of him. That's, that's a major mess up. But I just love that response that when their hearts were broken because of that news, their, the response they were given was not, there's not room for you anymore. You, you're not, you can't ever be good enough. The response was just to repent um, be baptized, and, and there's this new forgiveness that comes, and there's this new life, and, and all that stuff can be gone. And so I hope that as you hear this today, I know this, every time you talk about the theme of the subject of sex, that it falls in a lot of different places. For some people, it brings up a lot of pain. 
because you, you've been on the other end of, of the abuse or the hurt and, and you know that. Um, and so I pray that that grace, you land in that. Um, and maybe you've been one who's, you lived outside of that will and, and you regret some of the things that maybe you did and you, you know that in your mind and Satan reminds you of it frequently. But I pray that you would be reminded that and the same God who, who was willing to speak truth into these Jews' lives was willing to say, hey, I know what you did, but come home. It's okay. We can forgive this and we can renew and rebuild something beautiful in your life. And so as we think about this subject today, I pray that we build shelters that are, are gracious places, warm places, soft places for people to land when we hurt and when we struggle and when we fall in this area. Because um, it's, it's a hard topic. And uh, we all come with our own baggage, our own hurts and our own struggles. And, uh, and so that's my prayer for us today. Um, I could talk for a long time, but it's time to quit. And so that's my prayer, that we would just not be people who just beat people up with truth, but we would be um, safe places for people who have walked away from truth to come back to truth and to find the God who loves them um, still. And so would you pray with me, please?